Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of June 10th, 2021. I'm Charles Hain, writer at No Film School. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Good morning. Good and, afternoon. Yeah, <laughs> or, or good night. And filmmaker, podcaster, writer, and, and many other things, Kath Tolentino. Hello. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about intimacy coordinators and negotiating nudity for projects specifically some recent comments by Natalie Emanuel and others. And we're going to be talking about, if you are maybe thinking about leaving Adobe, what some other options might be. All of that and a great Ask No Film School about working in white spaces this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so our first subject this week is... uh, Natalie Manuel, who many people know from Missing Day in Game of Thrones, but she was also great in my favorite franchise, which is the Fast and the Furious franchise. She was in at least one of those and was very good and is, you know, she's been in many, many things. And she got news this week for saying something that should be not news, but it was news. And she was basically like, you know, to summarize her statement, it was, I did Game of Thrones and there was nudity in Game of Thrones, but future casting directors should not assume that what I did in Game of Thrones, I would do in other projects, which like, well, of course not. Like every project has its individual demands, right? Like, like to remove sex from it, Robert De Niro gained 200 pounds to play Raging Bull. You're not going to you should not assume that every movie Robert De Niro is going to be interested in gaining another hundred pounds and dropping it. I mean, Christian Bale might be willing to do that for every part, but like people do different <laughs> things for every production they're on and different roles have different requirements. And she had this really interesting observation, which was in her experience, the expectations changed for her after game of Thrones, the parts she was being offered before game of Thrones probably had less nudity and less default expectation of nudity. And then there was more nudity after Game of Thrones and more like if she would push back on it, more like, well, but you were so naked in Game of Thrones. And this is tied up in so many like social taboos around nudity, like that it's like, well, once you've been naked once, it's like, it doesn't mean anything anymore. So you can just keep being naked on screen again, which is like, not correct. Every time you do it, it is a vulnerable shooting environment. Every time you do it, it's going to feel freshly different and you can have different approaches to it in different time. And every role is going to have it differently. I remember once I was talking to a director who had cast Jennifer Connelly in something where there was nudity and he had a long conversation with her about nudity. And he opened the conversation by saying something like, I'm sure every script you get has a nude scene. And I wanted to talk about why I thought this one was actually important. And that was like an early conversation. And she said something of like, yeah, absolutely every role I get has nudity in it. And it's not always relevant. <laughs> so I think there's like so many things here that are like all of these weird, buried cultural assumptions of like, once you've done it once, you'll do it again a bunch of times and like all of these things. And like every part is different and it should always be, every single one is a fresh negotiation about what is right for the part and necessary for the movie. I mean, some people, many people would argue that not all of it was necessary in Game of Thrones. It was certainly part of the aesthetic of the show. I, yeah. I find the, the whole topic is interesting to me from a few angles. One, from a historical perspective, the idea of how censorship and nudity and sex is depicted in film. Because, 
you know, it's changed a lot. There was pre-code, there was the code, then there was sort of an explosion of a different type of thing happening in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And I often think about, you know, if you go back and watch Terminator from 1985, there is an, there's a sex scene that involves nudity. And it's just kind of crazy to think that a movie like that, what what is like an action, you know, I don't want to say it was a four quadrant movie, but it's just kind of weird that it was like that was the thing that they were like, yeah, let's hey, let's just throw in a big old sex scene in the middle of this action movie. Like that used to be more commonplace. So I think the the what is a what is a quote unquote normal or expected thing in a movie has changed so much even in my lifetime. You would never see in a new Terminator movie nudity. Because the idea is that they're trying to, you know, catch more people, not less. And they're trying to make sure that their movie, hundreds of people are horribly maimed, is child appropriate? Sure. Yeah, there's that too. I mean, that <laughs> was another so big... That, I mean, that that's another fascinating uh, side conversation that started, I think, that I start, we started to hear more in the 80s and has, and has grown, which is like, wait, wait, no, we can watch any amount of, of murder and violence, but nudity and sex is something we're definitely going to trim out like slowly, but surely like the idea of seeing a sex scene in a Marvel movie seems kind of hilarious. Doesn't it? Like you'd never see that. Like you just never would, but like all kinds of death and violence and destruction. Sure. Why not? But it's just the cultural changes and expectations. And I think that the nudity thing is, you know, we've on No Film School, we've written about it a couple times because Kira Knightley recently said like, hey, no more nude scenes. Like, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, and then she kind of said, I think, I don't want to misquote, but I think it was something like, well, depending on the circumstance, if it's in this way or this, but I, you know, there's a lot of male actors where I think there's full frontal male nudity of Kevin Bacon in Apollo 13 that is just completely like, what, why? He's just like someone goes to talk to him and he's just standing in the shower naked. Like, you again, you'd never see something like that anymore. And I, I guess where I'm going with that is like, there's some male actors, like I think Ewan McGregor was naked in like half the movies he was in at one point, like for some reason. I don't know if that became something every time he got a script, they were like, there was an assumption he would be naked. But I think that... Everyone is entitled to make a clear, like, I'm not going to do this, obviously. Um, and then they're entitled to change their mind, too. Like, that, it's just up to them. I will push back a little bit on one thing, though, because I think that it's funny. Like, there is, like with Robert De Niro, it's kind of crazy to think, oh, yeah, he's going to gain weight for every movie. However, he is known as a guy, just like Christian Bale, like you said who's like, once you've become established as like, a, this is an actor who will go to great lengths, whatever they are. It's kind of like the knowledge of this is an actor who will take their clothes off. Maybe they don't want to do it every time, but it is something that they are willing to do. So I do think like casting people or filmmakers should be cognizant of that, like what your friend was. Like they're going to get a lot of those because once they've done it, that's an expectation almost. Well, it's just so frustrating. I mean, George, you mentioned Kevin Bacon or um, Ewan McGregor, but the instances where we're seeing men nude in movies are just like a tiny, tiny fraction of how often we see women nude in movies and TV. And in so many cases, it's just like completely unnecessary. And I've gotten to the point where I'll watch TV shows and anytime I see 
you know, like breasts bared, uh, whether it's in a sex scene or not. And most of the time I think to myself, like, I don't really need that. And it's kind of frustrating that they asked the actor to do this because it puts them in a really vulnerable position. Um, and it's just like solely for business purposes. It's not at all for story. And it's kind of unfair, you know? <clears throat> yeah. Didn't, um, Blinking. Emilio Clark say at one point during Game of Thrones, she was no longer going to do nudity in Game of Thrones. Good she for done her because they were I, like, I, I mean, just her role, she was asked to do a lot. Also, did you know that she suffered like multiple aneurysms while she was working on Game of Thrones? I no, think it's I did like, not know that. That has to be from the stress of working on that show and being asked to do so much. Yeah, um, her first at such scene, a young age. I mean, nude. she was right out of school, right? Yeah, her first scene, she's nude. And it's like, guys, come on. Like, have a little more respect for her. I mean, I get that, like, in the scene, her brother doesn't have respect for her. And that's kind of the, the purpose of it. But it just feels like so shock value and, and unnecessary at this point. Um, oh, no. I mean, like, for me, the question becomes like, all right, so then what are the scene? What are the films where nudity still made sense? Like, because sex is part of life, right? So if, like, film is going to be about the full palette of the human experience, like, are there movies where we're like, oh, like, I mean, the Marco Roby nude scene in Wolf of Wall Street, actually, I think, is maybe a good example. Or at least the d- defense you, she used to herself was it was a tool the character was using in the scene, and it was about perception and excess. It was also very, very short. I don't so even remember that. Yeah. I only remember it because she talked really interestingly in interviews about the decision to do it as being driven from like, this is the tool the character would use in this moment. Like, this is what the character thinks she has a value to offer. I mean, it is like with all of these things, like sex and violence, like we say, like, there is a place for them in movies, but we also like, like, I can't even like, I'm trying to think of like five great examples of nudity in movies that actually made the movie that the movie wouldn't have worked without. And like, you could have taken that out. You could have taken that scene out of Wolf of Wall Street and Wolf of Wall Street still would have worked. So it's like, at what point, like, what are the places where it does make sense to keep it? Or we go back to Contempt with Godard, right? Where Godard apparently didn't want to do a new nude scene with Bridget Bardot, but the producer had negotiated a nude scene with Bridget Bardot. So because the producer had paid for it, he said, Godard, you have to do it because we've paid for it. And so he he made it the opening scene and it was just a long pan up and down Bridget Bardot laying in bed naked so that if that's why the audience came, if that's what you came for, you can leave. Because the tradition in cinema in the 50s was like, you know, slowly more and more is revealed over the course of the movie. And Godard was like, all right, well, I will do this if I have to, but I'll make the color grading really ridiculous. The color grading in that seems <laughs> amazing. And then, um, and then if that is what you're here for, you can go. I love the idea of when does it make sense and when doesn't it make sense because i think that the answer is who's to say like i just keep thinking with this about hitchcock because i think he's like pretty much as good as it gets in terms of how he directs a movie but so much of what he would do would be hide the sex hide the violence like and the tease of it the suggestion of it the implication becomes tantalizing and so you can get so much more out of hinting, suggesting, teasing than you can with the, in my opinion. And it's not some puritanic, like, I don't think you should have it. Like, I am all for it. Like, put it in your movies, put it, put all the violence you want. Do Tarantino, he likes to paint with broad, bright red strokes and blood. 
do all the nudity you want, like Game of Thrones, like go ahead, do it. As long as people aren't being exploited or they're comfortable with it. And as long as they're respected when they say, I don't want to do it anymore, which it seems like they were. I, I have plenty of complaints about Game of Thrones and those two sh- showrunners and their work. I don't, th- th- this is part of it where I'm just like kind of, you know, it's great that she said she didn't want to do it anymore, but it's also fine to do it. I, I just don't care. But the thing that I do think is, Sometimes you can get a lot more out of a lot less, not just in terms of what you are willing to show, but how you're artful in hint, because we're all more attracted to and interested in the thing that we can't have or don't see or happens off screen. That's just the oldest trick in the book, I think. But bringing up Hitchcock as an example is really complicated because the way he treated Tippi Hedren on birds is just insane. And like, oh yeah, he was a monster. I mean, like, I mean, so like, I mean he's <laughs> and and what were really, and I think there's and what we're struggling with this thing where he got mad about a pregnant like one of his stars was pregnant or great maybe it was Grace Kelly. He was just abusive. Yeah, yeah. And the thing we're struggling with here is that like it's not a, it's not just about what the final edit reveals. It's also about the experience of creating that edit on set. Right. It's about like the set environment of all the human beings who are creating, which is sort of going to pivot us to our next thing which is sort of related, which is Michaela Cole dedicated her BAFTA win to her onset intimacy coordinator, Ida O'Brien. And like, you know, one of the things Natalie Emanuel talking about is like what I am comfortable doing with for a project, because you can be nude on set and then it can be edited in a way that's mysterious and isn't about like titillation or whatever, but the actor still has to be nude on set and go through that vulnerability and all of that experience. So it's like, you know, like, yes, Hitchcock would not reveal many things, Although there's still plenty of stuff in Vertigo that just seems terrifically awful to the actors and birds and several others. But like in the edit, he would hide it for the audience, but the actor would still have to endure that kind of abuse on set. So it is just sort of like, I really wanted to sort of pivot this conversation to the next step, which is intimacy coordinators. I remember a year and a half ago, I did a Sundance roundtable of DPs. I talked to 11 DPs and only one DP had worked with an intimacy coordinator yet. And these were all like DPs with movies at Sundance some of whom repeat people and like two of the people had not even heard of intimacy coordinators yet. So this is something that like, if you've been around this conversation, it feels like it's been going on for a few years now, but it's still really new. And I thought it was really awesome of Michael Cole to use the BAFTAs, which is, you know, one of those award ceremonies, especially in England that gets attention outside the industry. Like even within the industry, a lot of people are still not working with intimacy coordinators to know what they are, but a lot of people outside the industry, if you didn't read that one New York Times article, you have no idea what they are. And to give it, to, to dedicate it specifically to the intimacy coordinator, which is an essential part of a project like I May Destroy You, but is also something that I think helps navigate these experiences better for when, for whatever reason, you decide nudity or sexual content is necessary for your story. And there are absolutely stories where it's necessary. Everyone has an experience working together that feels safe, productive, and non-traumatizing. Because, like, I imagine a lot of people have walked away from a lot of film shoots feeling pretty terrible. We have, at, like, so no film school has been around a long time, obviously, now. And I feel like there's, like, the old, there's an app for that. I feel like with us at no film school, there's a post for that because there's been tens of thousands of posts. But we did a story about HBO's intimacy coordinator revealing the sex kit used on movies and TV back in 2019. And it's a really cool piece that goes through because the Atlantic had talked to somebody, had talked to an HBO's, had talked to HBO's intimacy coordinator about what they have, how they do it, what you have to have on set, 
the whole the whole deal. And I think it's useful because say you're not HBO, say you're just doing a short, but or or an indie or something, but you want to have the you want to do it the right way, or you want to at least offer your talent like we're going to do this, but we're going to go the prof- most professional route possible. Like use this tool, read about the sex kit and how it's done, so you can do it the right way. Yeah, I think uh, you know just the, what comes to mind for me is like Last Tango in Paris and how. Sad that that story was, and there's so many directors that don't have an understanding of what an actor goes through emotionally and physically to put themselves into a part. And not only that, you're not only trying to recreate the feeling of whatever scene you're playing fully in your mind and in your experience, but you're also dealing with a bunch of people staring at you and lights, and there's a camera pointed at you that is recording that's going to create footage that's going to live forever. It's a whole lot of stress to put on a person. Um, And I love what Michaela Cole said, uh, accepting the award. She said, I know what what it is like to shoot without an NFC coordinator, the messy, embarrassing feeling for the crew and the internal devastation for the actor. And I think that really underscores like how important it is to be looking out for your actor's well-being, particularly in scenes like this. Because it's just such a huge ask, you know? I mean, yes, it's an actor's job to be able to play these parts and, and put themselves in the moment psychologically, but it's a really hard job and it affects people mentally and emotionally, you know? So I think that the last Tango in Paris story about that scene, the fact that it's rape, is important for obvious reasons, but also because. For a long time, we didn't know that about that movie and that scene. And I suspect there are a lot of incidents where consent wasn't really in in the wasn't really given, and things happened, and there's a violation. And I think that it's it's probably way more than we realize because people feel coerced or they feel required to do something or they feel that if they don't, there will be consequences to their career, and it goes in a lot of bad directions. So yeah, I think, I think one to highlight. I think circling back to what Natalie Emanuel said about she revealed that like when she reads a part and feels like the level of nudity that's required is not actually what's required for the character and for the story. And when she speaks up about it, she says nine times out of ten, people want to come to a compromise with her. So she's not usually at this point receiving a lot of like slam doors in her face or threats or, you know, you're, you need to do this, your acting career, blah, blah, blah. Most people are wanting to work it out with her. That being said, there is still the occasional person that says, well, this is what's required of the part. And if you're not going to do it, you won't get the part. And her response there is, okay, then I don't want the part. And I think more power to her. And I think that's a really great lesson, you know, not just for actors, but about negotiation in general. There has been a lot of debate over the last decade that Creative Cloud's been a thing about whether or not Adobe was too expensive. My father purchased outright a full version of whatever the last non-creative Photoshop was. I think it was CS8. And he was like, I just don't want to pay subscription. So he paid like $600 for CS8 and he's still monkeying around on Photoshop CS8 and has lived without all of the updates for a decade because he is stubborn. Which, you know, respect. Stubbornness is great. I personally think that their pricing is just right for business. So when I think about Creative Cloud, 
I remember the number of times where, you know, I had a post house and production company. We had like 12 full timers, but then like the extended family of people who would work would be 20 or 30. We had like a, a bullpen of like 14 seats for VFX and like big jobs would come in and the ability to be like, oh, let's get a whole bunch of like extra seats of After Effects for a month or two and not have to buy full After Effects licenses for every one of those stations, but like just do it for a couple months and then turn it off again or whatever. It like, it works really well for that business case. And I think that is where, because if you're Adobe, you have to be nice. like, okay, what's the price point we can get out of consumers? And what's the price point we can get out of working pros? And for me, the, the price point is like just perfect for working pros. And as such, I think it makes it too expensive for many consumers. If you are not actively using it to make money, it does come, it does start to feel a little pricey. So, what I've actually been on a mission for lately is making sure that I have good working alternatives to all of them, to Premiere, to Photoshop, and to Lightroom. And I do right now. I mean, there's the easiest recommendation in the world to make for an alternative to Premiere is Black Magic DaVinci Resolve. I've been working full-time in Resolve for 13 years as a colorist, but then, you know, I've moved all of my edit over to Resolve at this point over the last three or four years. I have numerous clients at this point that hire me just because I edit and resolve and they're having so much of a hard time finding other editors who work in resolve. It is stable. It is robust. It is mature. It is absolutely free. You can literally just download it from the website. There is an upgraded studio version for $300, but again, that's a $300 one-time payment. I paid my $300 for studio. Well, I actually paid for it when it was $500 back in 2015 but it's $300 now. But six years later, and I haven't paid another penny for it, and it still keeps working. And so $500 amortized over the six years for studio is a really good deal. The restrictions with studio are you get some nicer noise correction features and some new resolutions. It's sort of a smart break for Blackmagic's part to, to, to limit some of the tools that really only working professionals will need to the paid price point while everybody else just churns along on free. Blackmagic has a different business model than Adobe. They want to make their money on hardware. So they want as many people using the software as they possibly can. If you're thinking about making the jump, they even have a setting built in Resolve where you can use all of your Premiere shortcuts, which is amazing. It is designed to make moving from Final Cut or Premiere really easy. And they have a ton of resources. If you go to their training site, they have free online classes, free online videos, free online eBooks that are really... Also, the manual is great. It used to be written by Alexis Van Herkman. I don't remember who's writing it now, but like, it's clear, it's concise, there's jokes. It like the manual is great, the training materials are great. It is legit free. They keep updating stuff. Like there's no at the free level, there's no real competition for Premiere except Resolve. Like just move over there. If you're still willing to pay for stuff, Final Cut 10, $300 and it's a full lifetime license for that has some popularity especially with doc, doc filmmakers. You're starting to see more and more people look at the like $300 one-time price for Final Cut 10 to be really worth it. So that's something I think you should consider as well. If you're like, oh, I don't really want to pay a subscription anymore. Apple does a one-time purchase and it works really well. You know, one of the biggest things as a filmmaker personally about giving this up wasn't even just giving up Premiere, but it was giving up Photoshop because I use Photoshop so constantly for like, you know, little sketchy previous things or like overhead diagram tweaks or like one thing I'll do a lot is I'll do a location scout and I'll be like, what if we like, painted out those buildings over there. And then I'll do like a quick content aware fill to like show a VFX artist, like where I want to paint things out or whatever. 
Like Photoshop is definitely as opened for me as Premiere was. And I think a lot of directors, Photoshop will be as hard to give up. Darren, like six months ago, was like, do you want to review Pixelmator? And I was like, yes, I do, because I want to learn how to use Pixelmator. So I did a review of Pixelmator for filmmakers. It's somewhere on the No Film School site. And uh, I found it, like, I literally, I found it so incredibly useful that like three weeks ago, I had to do a thing and I was like, I'm doing it in Pixelmator. And it came up with the little, like, your trial's over, buy it. And I bought it in a heartbeat, paid the full freight for the Pixelmator, which is only, I think it was $29.99 for a lifetime license on Pixelmator Pro. And I did all of the things that I would normally, yeah. And it, and it did all of the stuff I normally want to do. Now, I'm not a Photoshop expert. I'm not a photo retoucher for a living. I am a filmmaker who occasionally has to fuck with photos. And so Pixelmator has been incredible for me. I guarantee you the like full-time photo retouchers in our listenership are like, no, nah, but Pixelmator doesn't do like, you know, reverse guido glitching or whatever. And it's like, I'm sure there's all this stuff that it doesn't do, but it does all of the things that I Photoshop for as a filmmaker. And it did them super quick and it worked great. And I had it open again this morning, tweaking something. So I think those are the the contenders if you are debating giving a temporary off to your Adobe. That being said, you know, in a professional working environment, Adobe is still incredibly dominant. And, you know, every time I think about turning off my Adobe, I work on some project somewhere with an editor that's like, uh, actually, I don't want to cut this in Resolve. Can we cut this in Adobe and I'll just send you XMLs? And it's like, ugh. You know, so there is a big... You, you, the thing you have to think about is your <laughs> collaborators. If this is a thing that you're just 100% doing solo, you're gold. If this is a thing where you're like, oh, I'm working on a one-year doc and I'm going to do the first six months of editing myself and then turn it over to someone else to come in for three months of final edit, you're going to have a much smaller pool of people in Resolve than you are in either Final Cut 10 or Premiere. I will say this about Resolve. Resolve has a very sophisticated motion graphics tool set in a tool called Fusion. It is a full 3D compositor, which After Effects is not. After Effects is like a 2.5D compositor. It is super powerful. And it's a little bit too powerful in that, <laughs> you know, like After Effects, literally, I needed to do this one thing with titles and I just opened up After Effects and hit buttons until I figured it out. That's not going to happen with Fusion. If you make the jump to Resolve and you're like, I also need to do occasional motion graphics stuff. <laughs> Give yourself the time to like watch a few tutorials on Fusion. It like it's not the kind of thing where you're just gonna poke buttons and make it work like After Effects is. You you need to give yourself some ground skills. It's great, it's super powerful, but you need some you need some basics. 